Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, investment banking correspondent, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and our guest this week is Bill Winters, the chief executive of Standard Chartered. We'll be talking today about Goldman Sachs in the dock. Secondly, a look at investment banking fees in the US versus Europe. And finally, a look at Standard Chartered, that interview with Bill Winters as he talks about the cancer of conduct within the bank. Firstly, though, to Goldman Sachs. Caroline, you've been looking at the interesting case that's been brought against Goldman by the Libya Investment Authority, uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund. It's a $1 billion suit. What are they accusing the bank of? The basic allegation is that Goldman exploited the wealth fund's limited experience by selling them two sophisticated derivatives that ultimately turned loss-making whilst turning a profit for Goldman. However, beyond that basic allegation, there have been all kinds of headline-grabbing accusations. Driss Ben-Brahim, for instance, who was Goldman's star emerging markets banker at the time, wrote an email that was read out at court yesterday where he said anyone could, quote, rape the LIA. And then we have other allegations about lavish hospitality, gifts, an internship given to the younger brother of an LIA senior official and trips to Dubai that also involved prostitutes. So it's fair to say that this legal case is being carefully watched. The LIA obviously has an axe to grind here because they lost a lot of money. But do the LIA have a point here? Well, I think at the nub of the case is whether the LIA was sophisticated enough to be making its own decisions about what investments to undertake. Goldman, for its part, has said that the LIA was perfectly well aware of the risks. They had people like Lord Jacob Rothschild and Howard Davis on its board at the time, so some fairly heavyweight advisers there. And sovereign wealth funds generally are perceived in the market as sophisticated investors. So I think that will be a very closely watched part of the decision when it's eventually made. It is true that the LIA lost money on these nine jumbo trades, as they were called. But it was during the financial crisis. So Goldman has equally said, look, these trades lost money not because of any faulty advice on the part of Goldman, but because of the worst financial crisis in a generation. Now, of course, Martin, there's been plenty of other investors that feel sour about losing money in the financial crisis. Well, yeah, I mean, only last week we had the denouement of a very long-running case between Guy Hans, the private equity investor, and Citigroup, the big US bank, where Guy Hans was claiming that he was misled into making a bid for EMI, the music group. Guy Hans eventually walked away from the case after it started to unravel in a London court last week. But there are other cases of a similar type. The Libya Investment Authority is also suing Société Générale of France for similar claims as the ones that it's making against Goldman. 
it's been a tough week in the UK for Goldman, a tough few weeks, because there's also some more more recent history that's being dragged up and attempting to be used as mud to sling against the US investment bank in the form of BHS and the role that Goldman Sachs played as well, they say they weren't an advisor, as an unpaid gatekeeper, if you like, in the sale of BHS to a consortium a year before BHS eventually collapsed. And uh, parliamentary select committees are now calling for Michael Sherwood, who is co-head of Goldman Sachs International, the London-based international arm of the investment bank, to appear before MPs to answer questions about the bank's relationship with Sir Philip Green, the previous owner of BHS. Mr Sherwood's name also appears in the Libyan case in the form of an email that was sent by another Goldman Sachs partner and forwarded to Michael Sherwood as well as some other senior Goldman officials saying, investment opportunities with this account is one of the largest I've ever seen. We're all over them. So the two cases show that as an investment bank, you do have to be extremely careful how you deal with clients. And even though these are wholesale markets and it's assumed that these are sophisticated investors and it's caveat emptor, you know, buyer beware, Goldman has got into trouble over this sort of stuff before with the famous Abacus subprime mortgage securities, which were sold particularly to German banks by Goldman Sachs, whilst at the same time they were making very disparaging remarks about them in internal emails. So there are precedents for this, banks getting into trouble for this type of thing. And just a final word, Caroline, Goldman's not the only bank in court at the moment. And actually, RBS being pursued over that similar issue of how sophisticated clients are. And in this case, not very. Yeah, RBS, together with Cerberus and KPMG and a couple of its partners, have been sued by Neil Mitchell, who is the former chief executive of Torex, specifically over the bank's now infamous global restructuring group, which is at the heart of regulatory inquiries right now. But Mr Mitchell is essentially saying that RBS and Cerberus allegedly colluded to rig the sale of Torex once it had been improperly pushed into restructuring for their own gain. So I think the similarities between the RBS and the Goldman lawsuit are essentially going to sharp practice immediately before the financial crisis. For the record, it should be noted that both RBS and Goldman deny the claims vigorously. Yeah, well, we'll watch those cases as they develop. Laura, uh, second story of the day is investment banking fees. You've done a mammoth expose of the fees paid by clients of investment banks both in the US and Europe and found a huge divergence between the far higher fees that are paid in the US versus Europe. What's going on? Yeah, so this is something we've been looking at for some time now. So it's always been known that the fees paid for initial public offerings in the US are far, far higher than here in Europe. So the fees there in the US are typically around 7% of the value. In Europe, they are around 3%. We decided to have a look and see if the same fee differential exists in terms of the amount investment banks charge for M&A advisory fees. So what we did was we went back over a period of 11 years and we looked at how much fees investment banks were charging for life-for-life transactions at various deal sizes over the period. And we found that companies in the US have paid around $8 billion more in fees on a like-for-like basis over that period. And we also found that the gap between the fees charged in the US market and the fees charged in the European market have been increasing steadily over the last few years. This is quite extraordinary. Everyone thinks of the US being an efficient market, a competitive market, and that you might expect fees to be lower. The US is quite a strange market because, yes, on the one hand, it is the most developed fees market in the world. 
it is the most developed banking market in the world. It's also a very heavily concentrated market. If you look at the US market, the five big American banks had 38% of the total M&A fees in the US market last year. If you look at the European market, the four big European banks only had a 9% market share. So the US market has become very concentrated, even more so in recent years, because we've seen a number of European banks have really had to focus more on their home market. That has led to them pulling back capacity from the US and from other international markets. So I think there are fewer choices than ever for companies who are looking for someone to do their M&A business. And even to the extent that there are European banks who still have a US presence, they have a smaller international network outside Europe and the US. And this means that if you are a US company who has a genuinely international need, so you don't just need US and the UK and Germany, you need US, UK, Asia, Brazil, then there are fewer and fewer choices. And that certainly does hand some more pricing power to the American banks. And there's a theory as well, isn't there, that the US banks themselves and arguably the US policymakers have conspired to make this whole scenario work better by squeezing margins in Europe and in Asia when they're working outside their home market, allowing them to dominate at home with lucrative fees And at the same time, foreign banks tend to get squeezed by regulators or have done over the past few years in that market. That's certainly the complaint of European banks. Yeah, European banks complain about this situation a lot because they say on the one hand, they're finding it tougher and tougher to compete in the US, partly because of additional US regulation, additional requirements for their American businesses. They're also arguing, as you say, that the US banks effectively use the big fat fees from their home market, which they dominate as a kind of cushion to allow them to go in and then underprice in the European market making life even harder. I mean, if you think about the dynamics in the European market, American underpricing doesn't really seem to be the issue which is actually driving fees down. Part of it is just because there is so much competition within individual country markets. So if you look at the US, you effectively have the five big banks competing plus a handful of Europeans. If you go to a market like Italy, France, Spain, you have the big Europeans, the big US, but also a lot of the regional players And the regional players really do hoover up a lot of market share in their own markets. And there's certainly anecdotal evidence that they're willing to do M&A business at very low fees because they're going to be taking a big part of the lending. So I think you could reasonably expect to have 14, 15, 16 banks within any individual European country all competing, where in the US you might only have six, seven, eight. And that really does have a very negative impact on fees. Okay. Thank you for that analysis and the full details and the full data on that is available on FT.com. So finally to this interesting Standard Chartered story where Bill Winters has come out and said that there is a cancer at the heart of the bank in terms of the complacency and lax controls evident among some senior staff and the misconduct they have exhibited. Martin and I interviewed Bill Winters the other day on this topic, and we started by asking him exactly what happened. Some parts of the control environment, not just relating to conduct, but also relating to risk management and expense control, wasn't as rigorous as it needs to be for this environment. The environment is much more challenging than it was for much of the last 15 years, and I think the bank built in a little bit of complacency around a whole bunch of things. Conduct was one of them. When we had incidents of relatively senior people using bad judgment or taking actions that, that were, I, I think with, with, the, with the benefit of any sort of rigorous review would be unacceptable. I say, well, why, how would a senior person be thinking that that's okay? I'm not going to get into too many examples because it's, you start to you know, sort of incriminate individuals, which isn't my point at all. 
but broadly we had some, I would call it largesse on the expense side, so not strictly violating rules, well, maybe in some cases strictly violating rules, but not, you're not egregiously violating rules, and not, you know, not people taking money and putting it in their pocket, but just engaging in expensive activities that were inconsistent with anybody's definition of the spirit of what we're trying to get done. Our colleagues reacted very strongly, and I definitely came across as angry when I, <laughs> when I spoke to the, you know, to the 1,500 senior people in the bank and just said, yeah, this is not the bank any of us want to work for. So, you know, we had you know, senior people that formed an investment consortia with other senior people, but also some less senior people. So, you know, a manager having the woman that reports to him together investing in a, in a highly speculative real estate venture. Now, is the real estate venture, was it inappropriate in any way? No, it wasn't a conflict. But, you know, what are the rules? Well, you, you declare an outside investment. You declare a close financial relationship with colleagues. And most certainly, if somebody had come to me or, or you know, Peter Sands or whatever and said, you know, I'm going into this venture and I've got a direct report of mine that's going in as well, we'd say, no, you can't do that. They were not disclosed. Neither was the no investment problem. disclosed, nor was the close financial relationship between colleagues disclosed. How did you find that kind of thing out? Uh, well, you've hired people from the FBI and... Uh, well, we do, have, we do have our head of investigations just from the FBI, but that's, that's not how we found it out. We're, we're not sleuthing on our, on our employees, but you, know, you have all sorts of ways of finding out, starting with when people leave or when people become disgruntled. They right. say, you know, by the way, I was encouraged to invest in something. I thought it had the bank's blessing, but yeah. it appears it didn't because now I'm get, being given a hard time, right. that sort of thing. But you know, we had um, employees that were lending money to other employees at very high interest rates. That's not okay, right? That's what a kind of rate of interest would someone well, like you know, more than your standard charter credit card. Yeah. And why? Because they were in desperate trouble and they needed the rate of interest. Maybe, maybe desperate trouble. Maybe you know, some speculation. Maybe it's you know, payback for introductions to other people. I mean, it's it's it doesn't matter really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's you, you don't have business dealings with other employees of the bank. It's just, it's, or or if you do. If you find yourself in a situation where you're investing together in a private equity vehicle, for example, well, that's okay. You just disclose it, declare it. It will make sure that the that there is no conflict and and monitor it from time to time. And these are all, frankly, I think it's basic stuff. Next, we asked Mr. Winters how bad it really was. I mean, these are frankly they're childish things, and individually they don't add up to material financial exposure to the bank, but culturally they're they're a cancer. And finally, we asked Mr. Winters to make a comparison between these types of misdemeanors and the infamous case of Standard Chartered breaching U.S. sanctions on various transactions, including Iranian sanctions. I don't think that we had people whose moral compass was slightly askew who were also thinking that it was okay to encourage business with, uh, with Iranian Nexus clients. I don't think that's the case. I do think, though that there was a, a little bit of complacency, a little bit of, a, of, of indulgence of deviation from a, a sort of a strict definition of policy that did contribute to us getting in trouble. I think that played out on the risk side where we allowed yeah. some concentrations to build up that the ordinary checks and balances should have, would have checked. And uh, I think you know, we underinvested in transaction monitoring and, and sanctions compliance, right? It, we, we obviously underinvested in that area. And as a result, there were some bad actors that were able to circumvent our defenses, for sure. That, I don't think, was the central problem. I think the central problem was that we underinvested in our own transaction monitoring capabilities. Obviously, you know, subsequently addressed to a substantial degree, still more work to do. So I don't think there's a, there a, a, a big ethical issue as it relates to our regulatory problems. But it was the same 
combination of complacency and, and looseness of controls. You know, maybe part of it was that we, we trusted people to do the right thing. And uh, trust is okay as long as you've had a good verification alongside the trust and we were a little bit light on the verification side. So, Martin, we sat down with Bill Winters and talked to him a lot more than on this one topic, but particularly on this, what's your judgment? Is this an angry Bill Winters stamping his authority on the bank? You know, it's, he's been there for a year now, but he's wanting to weed out any transgressors. Yeah, I think this is crucial for Bill Winters. His first year has mostly been taken up with balance sheet issues. So he had to raise just over $5 billion from a rights issue to shore up the balance sheet. He took a whole bucket load of provisions for bad debts to big, heavily indebted Indian clients and Indonesian clients that the bank had overextended itself in recent years. So there was that cleaning up of the balance sheet. And that's what he's been focused on. But now he's turning to more cultural issues and has found these various examples, you know, the expenses, the things that he talked about. And I think that he realizes that he needs to clamp down on these very hard because, as he said, it's a slippery slope. And if there isn't a cohesive culture, cohesive code of conduct that's respected and tightly verified, then, you know, you could slip back into the types of risky lending that was beyond normal risk limits of the types of risky behaviour in breaching sanctions that have landed the bank in big trouble in recent years and a, a large part of the reason why its shares have fallen by more than two thirds in the past few years and its star has really fallen But he does say he's not despairing about this. He says, I remain as convinced as I hoped I would be that the ethical culture of the bank is very strong. So he can see a good culture there. It's just a question of, I think, as he explained to us, you've got 35 different countries in Africa, Middle East, Asia, across these regions, very different cultures when it comes to the attitude towards these types of things, expenses, these types of behaviours. And so creating a homogeneous culture for this type of bank as Standard Chartered is, is much more difficult for him to do there than it was when he was running the investment bank at JP Morgan. Partly because that was a bank, or that is a bank, that is less embedded in local economies, local cultures. Yeah. Probably more foreign nationals working in those markets rather than being embedded locally. Yeah, there's very little retail business outside the US for JP Morgan very little commercial business. It's global investment banking and capital markets, which can be done by foreigners. But commercial banking, dealing with SMEs, corporates, retail consumers, customers, you need a large local staff in these markets. And Stan Charters has got that. It's a big challenge here, but he realises that it's important. I think one of the interesting points that he made to us, which we haven't uh, played the clip of, but that staff generally seemed very supportive of what he'd done on this through internal memos and presentations to staff because he seemed to be calling out very senior people within the bank, not by name, but targeting some senior people who maybe had gone over the top with expenses and with breaching guidelines and so on and people who might perhaps have been resented by their underlings. Actually, that's been a popular move. Yeah. Well, he said it was 100 to 1, the messages of support he'd got against the few that were criticising his clampdown. And he said that what most people particularly applauded was this clamping down on the leniency that there had been or there has been for senior staff. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Laura and Caroline here in the studio and also to thank our guest, Bill Winters from Standard Chartered. 
Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.